main speaker for this evening, Brian P. from San Diego. Damn, it's a lot of people in here. I'm a little nervous. I mean, real nervous. I feel like I gotta take a shit right now. <laughs> my name is Brian. I am an alcoholic. Thanks to my higher power, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you people, I have another day of continuous sobriety. I don't know about you, but I'm going to tell you a few things about me, and I'm going to tell you exactly how this program worked for me. And I'm confident it can work for you also. I've been drinking and getting loaded since I was 15, so all I know is drinking and getting loaded. And I did that for so long that I have nine years sober, and I have a lot of years of drinking and getting loaded. So which one do I really know how to do? I know how to drink and get loaded and fuck things up. But I never gave life an opportunity to show up that I could drink to escape my problems because when I started using and drinking at 15, I didn't have any problems. Regardless of what some people think, everybody doesn't start drinking and using because they're trying to escape problems. I was 15, I just wanted to experiment and have fun. And repetitiously, eventually addiction kicked in. So my whole problem all my life has been drinking and using. As my sponsor alluded to, there are five things that I must do. And he told me this. He said, you got to go to meetings, have a high power, get a sponsor, work the steps, and do service work. He told me, he said, if you do those five things, Brian, I guarantee you'll get sober. And if you continue to do them, you'll stay sober. So those are the five things that I want to talk about because those are the five things that got me sober. And those are the five things that keep me sober. So the first thing I want to talk about is meetings. Don't underestimate the power of meetings because the meetings is the foundation of my recovery because I learned everything in a meeting. See, I learned the indicated next step by being in a meeting. I learned about the steps and the sponsor. I learned about everything from being in a meeting. February 1st, 2008, I woke up in an empty car because I was homeless. I didn't have a pot to piss in. And I had to go see my probation officer. And the only reason I went to go see my probation officer is because every time I got arrested, I got arrested for absconding. Because I never reported. And the only reason I went to go see my probation officer is not because I wanted to, to be this model citizen and get my shit together. It's just I got tired of my drinking and using getting interrupted. Because every time I got arrested, I was on one. That obsession of the mind was on or the phenomenon of craving was on my ass. And I always got arrested. And being in the, and I hated being in the, in the back of the police car getting separated from drugs and alcohol. I hated that feeling. So the only reason I went to go see my probation officer is so my drinking and using wouldn't get interrupted. So I went to go see my probation officer. I hopped on a bus. I asked the, uh, the bus driver to allow me to go downtown. And when I went to my probation officer, he had me a piss cup. Now, I'm an addict and alcoholic, plus I come from one of those communities where I know how to use honesty as a form of manipulation. So I said, you know what? I really want some help. I'm homeless. I didn't want any help. I just didn't want him to violate me on the dirty piss test that I was getting ready to give him. So he said, you know what, Brian? He, he went in his office for about three hours, and I know he was calling the police on me, but he didn't. He came out. He said, I got you in the VOA. You're going to be at the VOA for 15 days. And in 15 days, this guy named Ben is going to come and pick you up and take you to this place called VBSD. And I was like, damn. Because <laughs> I really didn't want to go. So, and because I do other drugs, when I say alcohol, <coughs> substituted for whatever you, I'm saying alcohol as for the format of this meeting. When I say bottle, think about pipe, because I did it all. It's just for the format and respect of the meat, I'm going to say alcohol and bottle. 
So when I went to his office, I still had a bottle on me because I had no intentions of getting sober. But he said, you have to go to this detox program. You got to go right now. And I said, you know what? I need to go back and get my clothes because this is on a Friday. That's for my sobriety. <laughs> this is why my sobriety birthday isn't until February 2nd because this is on February 1st and I didn't have 24 hours sober and clean until February 2nd. Don't forget, I'm homeless. I don't have a pot to piss in. Everything I had was already on me. I just didn't, I just didn't want my weekend to stop. So I went down, I started walking because the VOA was downtown, like Park and Market downtown. So I went from Broadway to the courthouse and I'm walking. I'm like, damn. And I'm just like, you know what? It's downtown. Let me get in here. Give me something to eat. Rest for a few days. And then I'm going to go downtown in the bottom. So I'm just going to continue doing what I always do. So I went in this detox program and I didn't know that they was going to wake us up two and three times a day. And these happy ass people from H&I were going to come in and share their experience, strength and hope. See, I'm a product of H&I. I got introduced to this process and this program through H&I. If it wasn't for H&I, I wouldn't be here. So if you do H&I, you never know who you might save or who you might, uh, who life might, might give them a glimmer of hope because I'm a product of H&I. And there's one guy named Greg who goes to me when my sponsor was. I still remember him being on an H&I panel. And every time I share, every time I go with my sponsor and take a token, he always comes up to me and cries. Because he remembered, because I always give him the credit, man, thank you for helping save my life. Now, when these people from H&I are coming in, I really don't want to go to the meeting, but you have to get up and go to the H&I meeting. It was doing two and three times a day, so I'm like, damn, I'm sleeping some of them. I'm not wanting to be there. But on the fourth day of listening to these people from H&I, something took place up in here. Something transpired where I started thinking, damn, if it happened for them, just might be able to happen for me also. So I was in the bathroom and I had my apparatus on me because I told you I drink and I get loaded. So whatever I had on me in the bathroom, I wrapped it up. I stepped on it and I threw it in the garbage can. I didn't know what I was going to do. I'm like, and I'm in the bathroom. I'm like, God, I don't know what to do. But these people got me believing that if they do it, I might be able to do it also. So I threw my apparatus in the trash can and I haven't had to go to the 99 cent store in nine years to buy a fucking nugget. As a direct result of this process. So I got introduced to this process through H&I, which is a meeting. So that's why I love that's why I love going to meetings. And then after 15 days, this guy named Ben came and picked me up and took me to VVSD. So I had 15 days. When I got to VVSD, I had 15 days sober. And when I start, when I went to VVSD, that's when I started seeing people take tokens. And when I was in a meeting and I seen somebody take a 30-day token, I was like, damn. In two weeks. I'll be able to take a 30-day token. See, meetings motivate me. Meetings inspire me because I'm seeing people always talking about overcoming. I'm always hearing people talk about the solution. I'm always hearing people talk about overcoming something. That's why it's hard for me to go to a meeting where all they're doing is bitching and complaining. I'll get pissed off when I go to a meeting like that. So I go to a meeting where I'm always hearing the solution because that motivate and inspire me. So when I see that person take a 30-day token, I'm like, damn, I can do it also. And when I was going to meetings, this guy right here used to come back to VVSD and pick up people who were on restriction because when you're, when you're in the first 30 days, you can't go anywhere. And Peter used to pick people up and take us out to go to meetings. And I had, so he was picking us up. And as soon as I got there, he always came on a Tuesday and a Thursday to take us, uh, no, on Thursday, I think, to take us somewhere. But he always came on Tuesday to speak at the men's meeting. And I remember he took me out, we, we, he took us to, uh, to, to PB to a meeting. And I was to say something he didn't like or he knew that, this dude is pretty fucked up, so I need to say something to him when we get back to VBSD. So 
after the meeting, he said, do you have a sponsor? I was like, no. And I'm, I, I, I know in the meetings is where I learned to get a sponsor, where I learned to do the steps, where I learned about service work. And I knew that I needed to get a sponsor, but I was still kind of nervous about getting a sponsor. And everybody, damn it, everybody at DVSD, the residents, hated Peter D. So when he came up to me after the meeting, he said, do you have a sponsor? See, I didn't even ask him to be my sponsor. He said, do you have a sponsor? I said, no. He looked at me, he said, I'm your fucking sponsor, and you better fucking like it. <laughs> and I, I was like, okay. <laughs> because the communities where I'm from, that cockiness and that arrogance sometimes is, is, is what you latch on to. And he's real cocky and confident about this process. When it comes to recovery and doing that, he's an asshole. Outside of, outside of the rooms, he's the nicest person you ever want to meet. But in these rooms, he's a straight asshole. <laughs> don't be talking. Don't be making no noise. Sit up in the front. Don't be, I mean, he's, that's how he is. But Peter came up to me and said, I'm going to be your sponsor and you better fucking like it. So my whole foundation is based on going to meetings because that's what started the paradigm shift because I was hopeless when I got here. I had, I had tried to stop drinking when I was out there, but every time I said I was going to stop, I never stopped. Every time I said I'm going to go to bed and wake up with some money in my pocket to get me a burrito, it never worked. <laughs> that obsession of the mind kicked in and said, let's go get one more. And that one more turned into all night. Actually, I know how I got my felonies now. After I read the doctor's opinion and I learned about powerlessness and I learned that when a thought comes to my mind, I have the inability not to go drink and use. And then when I drink and use, I have the inability to stop because the phenomenon of craving kicked in. That means I'm fucked. But now I know how I really got in trouble. See, the obsession of the mind is how I got my misdemeanors. When the thought came, I'll go panhandle, I'll go do something to get started. But once I got started and the phenomenon of craving kicked in, the phenomenon of craving is how I got my felonies. <laughs> Because when that monkey is on you, you you willing to do whatever it takes to get that next one. So I don't I, I know I know how to separate. If I don't drink and use, the phenomenal craving will never kick in. I'm not I'm not I, I, I don't misunderstand that. I understand that it's the obsession of the mind and the allergy of the body and the allergy of the body. The phenomenal craving only kicks in as a direct result of drinking and using. If I don't drink and use, the phenomenal craving would never kick in. Doesn't mean the thought might not come to my mind. But the phenomenal craving would never kick in. And the phenomenal craving hasn't kicked in because the only solution for an alcoholic like me is total abstinence. And I learned that in these rooms. So once I got the VVSD and I got Peter and I'm going to these meetings, there have been times when I was having pity parties for myself. And I don't go to a meeting for two weeks. I'm pissed off because when I got here, I was like a five-time felon. And every time I get hired, when a background check come back, I would get fired. And I would call my sponsor crying and getting pissed off and I'm mad. He said, Brian, you got hired, right? I said, yeah. He said, who you are today got you hired. Who you were then got your ass fired. <laughs> but it's been times when I don't go to a meeting and there's something on the inside of you that once you start going to a meeting and once you start working this process, there's something on the inside of you that may tug you like, you need to get your butt to a meeting. So after two weeks of not going to a meeting on several occasions because I'm pissed off at the meeting, I'm just, just pissed off. I'm not pissed off at anybody, but I don't want to do a damn thing, right? I go to a meeting, and all of a sudden, I don't hear anybody talking about what I'm going through. 
I don't hear anybody talking about any solution about any similarities of what I'm going through. But the simple fact that I went through to a meeting helped my mind go from pessimistic to optimistic. And but when I leave there, I'm thinking, let me hold on just a little bit longer. Let me try just a little bit longer. Because even when you're feeling down now, you go to a meeting, there's something about hearing people share that. Yes, God can. If you just hold on a little bit longer, stay with the process and God is going to come through for you. So the meetings is the foundation of all of my recovery because everything that I have today was built on going to meetings. And I think that's one of my competitive advantages is I love going to meetings. And also I learned that the majority, I mean, my sponsor, I was at a meeting and my sponsor had, gave me, I had a pen and piece of paper, he gave me a pen and piece of paper. And he had me go around to everybody in that meeting who had relapsed and asked them what were they doing before they relapsed and what happened. So I'm walking around with a pen because I'm still at VBSD. I'm walking around with a pen, and I'm going up to people. And everybody that said they relapsed, everybody had the same story. The first thing they said they stopped doing was going to meetings. That was the first thing they said. I stopped going to meetings. So if I threw my apparatus away because H&I came in and that motivated me, if I got inspired because I seen a person take a 30-day token, if... I don't go to a meeting for two weeks, then I go to a meeting, and all of a sudden, the paradigm shift starts all over again. I go from pessimistic to optimistic. Something is telling me that I need to go to meetings. So I go to meetings on a regular basis, and by going to meetings, meet, by going to the same meeting on a regular basis I, is how I built up that support network, my support group my foundation, my fellowship. And it's going to be times when you're going to need a fellowship because things in life pop up. No matter how much faith I've had, no matter how much my belief in God is, things in life just happen. But because I kept going to the meeting, or one meeting in particular on a regular basis, people got to know me. I became friends with people. I have a support group. And there have been times when I've wanted to get loaded, I wanted to drink, my sponsor didn't answer the phone, and my sponsor told me to make sure you go out and you get your phone numbers. And at one meeting, he told me to go around and ask people for their phone numbers. But again, if it wasn't for the meetings, I would have never learned about a sponsor, learned about the steps, and learned about everything else. So when I got that foundation, I got this fellowship. When those times when my sponsor didn't answer and that, uh, that glimmer, that, that little bit of obsession was on me, I was able to call somebody because I have a daughter, and I never knew what baby mama drama was until I had my own daughter. And my daughter, is she just turned four in March, right? And my baby mama drama was intense, right? And all kind of negative thoughts used to go, to my, go through my mind. And I used to call this fellowship 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. I used to call Peter early in the morning. I'm crying, I'm pissed off. And, and that fellowship said, it'll be okay. Because there's been times when I was so weak, when my daughter's mother tried to take my daughter from me, I was so weak that the fellowship held me up when I couldn't hold myself up. I was calling people late at night. I was crying at people. People was willing to take me out. People, after the meetings, people were taking me out. And my sponsor, I love him to death. My, if I need my sponsor, my sponsor type of person, if I call him, if I really need him, he will hop his ass up and come and see about me. And I know that 100%. That's why I love him to this day, because that is my dog, right? So meetings is the foundation of all of my recovery. So I, I love going to meetings. So don't underestimate the power of going to meetings because meetings started my recovery. Meetings helped my recovery when I felt stagnant. And meetings is still the motivating factor 
of when I go there and I hear and I'm going through something or things ain't working out, I want to start my own business, it ain't working, shit ain't going right. In a meeting, you'll always hear somebody say how they overcome or they always talk about the solution. So don't underestimate the power of a meeting. The second thing my sponsor told me I had to do was get a higher power. Now, that, now that one was going to be difficult because when I came to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was pissed off at God. I was, I'm from North Carolina, so I was raised in the church. That's all you know is going to church. But since I started drinking and using at 15, for like a couple years, I fell off. But I started back going to church around my 11th grade year, the January of my 11th grade year, going into my senior year. So I started going to church and I stopped drinking and using. Now I'm going to church, I'm back in school, I'm getting my grades right enough to graduate. So now I got all this, God is everything. I got this faith. And I remember one time my mother had this bill and the lights were, because I'm from the projects, man, and times were rough. My mother had this light bill and the lights were supposed to get cut off on that Friday. It was on a Friday. I came home from school. She said, Brian, the lights might get cut off. But I'm in church. I don't drink it no more. I got all this faith. I touched it just like, you know what I'm saying, in the name of Jesus and all this. <laughs> but that night, the lights didn't get cut off. Saturday, they didn't cut off. Sunday, they were still on. Monday, my mother got the money to pay the bill. And when she went down there to pay the bill, she said, the lights were supposed to get cut off. She said they were, they, and down at the, uh, S, um, it wasn't SD Jenny, but it was Pacific something back in North Carolina. They said it was supposed to get cut off. They said, but on Friday, the system went down. <laughs> now, can you imagine how I feel? I just prayed. I just said in the name of Jesus. So I'm excited about God. I'm excited about church. I'm excited about faith. I mean, I'm just, can't nobody tell. I know this faith thing works. I graduated high school June 3rd, 1993. But my daddy died when I was in the fifth grade from I inherited $16,873 in, in March, but I couldn't cash it until April when I turned 18. I was graduating that June. So for a whole month in the projects, I sat with a check for $16,873 under my pillow. When I turned 18, I cashed it, gave my mom some money, went and got me a car. Now I got a car. I'm graduating high school, and in June comes. June 3rd, 1993, I graduate. I walk across the aisle. And when, in my community, a lot of you all start off in school, but by the time you graduate, it's only a handful of you. And I was, I, and I was one of the handful. My mother seen me graduate. She was screaming my name. She was yelling. She was excited. I'm in church. I'm not drinking. I'm not using. I mean, it's like the best time of my life. My excitement, my love for God and all that shit was up here. The very next day, I was supposed to go to Virginia Beach. I take my car to the shop. You know how you get your tires rotated, make sure you're ready to go on the road. I take my car to the shop and I come home. And in the projects, you might use your back door like your front door. And I see my clothes in the dryer because that night my mother said, Brian, I'm going to wash your clothes tonight on uh, June 3rd. You go out and have fun with your friends because you graduated. She said, in the morning, when you take your car to the shop, I'm going to get up and put your clothes in the dryer. So when I come in the back door and I see my clothes in the dryer, I'm like, shit, it's a good day. I'm going to pack my clothes and go to Virginia. I walk in the living room and I find my mother dead in the middle of the fucking floor. From that day forward, resentments against God, resentments against life. Even resentments against my dead mother went to a peak that I didn't even know. I, man, the demons and the evil that was in me came up so much, I didn't even know this shit was fucking possible. So for me to believe in God again, when I know I'm going to church, I'm doing the right thing, and I got this faith, and something still bad still happens like this? I didn't know she was sick, and 
when, when I went to the hospital, the, the doctor said, Brian, you want to do an autopsy? And, I, and I'm 18 years old, and I said no. I wish I would have said yeah, because it still haunts me because I really don't know what happened. I don't know if somebody strangled, I don't know if she got choked, but my sister said she probably had diabetes, and so I try to hold on to that to give myself a little more peace of mind than thinking that somebody did something while I was gone, but I always remember that she got up and she washed the clothes. So from that day forward, man, I was so angry at God. And the last thing you want to hear, like two weeks after graduating high school, I'm sitting, a fr- I'm sitting across the desk from the funeral director, and he teaching me what casket is the best casket to bury my mother in. She was fucked up. And I had a brother in Atlanta, a sister in Detroit. They come because I inherited some money. All the responsibility lies on me. Man, I was pissed. And, and the last thing you want to hear, which even fueled my resentment, is these religious ass people, when something bad happened, they say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. What the fuck you mean? <laughs> that was my mom. God knows what he's doing. What you, I don't understand. I need to know what the hell he's doing. I need to know what's going on. So that day forward, I was pissed off. Three months later, I'm drinking and smoking. Six months later, I'm homeless again. I got to do something, so I decided to run to the military. I run to the military, and I'm an alcoholic to the 10th power. No matter where I am, no matter where I am, no matter what community I am, I can tell if there's some happenings in that community. There's something on the inside of me that goes off to say, this neighborhood might have what you want. You know how some people have a, a gay door if they're gay. Some people have a radar. I have a crack door. No matter what community I'm in, it'll go off and tell me it's some around here somewhere. So I ran to the military to escape. Not because I wanted to do this patriot dude. I ran to the military to escape thinking that if I go to the military, something different is going to happen. One of my favorite quotes is from Einstein. Einstein says, you can't solve a problem with the same mind and way of thinking that created that problem. Now I know I can't solve my drinking and getting high problem with the same mind and thinking that created my drinking and getting high problem. So I thought if I ran to the military, I, the geographical change would do it, but it didn't. Six months after being in here, I'm smoking and drinking. 18 months after being in the military, I get kicked out because I pop on a piss test. Six months after getting out of the military, I'm in Long Park Federal Penitentiary. Shit just go bad real quick. <laughs> so when I come here now, on my journey, I'm still wanting to have this relationship with God because it's embedded in me. I'm conditioned to believe in something. And as I started growing, I started doing my own research. There are certain things that I no longer agree with, some things I do agree with, but there is a God that I wanted to have business, I wanted to do business with. There's a way that I wanted to believe, but I was scared to believe because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking if I choose this way, something bad will happen to me. If I choose this God, it's going to be a different God, and I'm going to go to this invisible place called hell, and I'm going to be burning the rest of my damn life. That's scary as hell. I don't want to be burning the rest of my life. So it's these things that I wanted to believe in, but it was hard for me to grasp it with this fear and people and hearing people say that all this other negative stuff. One thing I love about Alcoholics Anonymous, no one in Alcoholics Anonymous has ever asked me, what do you believe in? What's the name of your God? What is the sin of God? What is the church? What is the, what is the worship place that you go to? No one has ever asked me that. They said, if you have a high power and it's working for you, keep using it. And that's the best thing that could happen to me. So when I came here and I started going through these steps with my sponsor, and he said, I can have the God of my own understanding. That is exactly what I needed to hear. 
because the way that I thought about God and for me to have so much faith in being in church and something bad still happened, it let me know that bad things can happen. But I learned that I never had a problem with God. I had a problem with all of you all's interpretation of God. The audacity of people to think they have a monopoly on God. But when I came around here, you all said I can have the God of my own understanding. That's what emotionally freed me up enough that I could do this process. Because if I had to have a God with the ideology, dogma, and creed that I resented, I probably couldn't have did this. So when I was able to get to God of my own understanding, that I don't have to defend in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have to argue with in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what gave me the emotional freedom to stay around here. So now that I'm going to meetings and I got this God that I can finally do business with, now my life is really starting to go because I'm going to meetings, I got this God, and I got this dude named Peter D. barking in my ear. <laughs> and you can do these steps, you're going to do these steps, you're going to change, you're going to be part of what is called the Crybaby Club. You remember he said the Crybaby Club up here? He said I was going to be a part of the Crybaby Club when I worked these steps. I'll be damned. <laughs> Now, I'm a part of what is called the crybaby club because now I don't have the alcohol and the other stuff to suppress my emotions, and I'm so emotional today. Man, have you all ever seen Undercover Boss? <laughs> it's good until at the end when they started giving people shit. Damn. I'm in a tearjerker for real, right? So I be watching all this stuff and I be getting excited and I'm crying in the bed by myself, you know what I mean? And it's because I'm so happy today that I'm not mad at myself, I'm not mad at God anymore, and I'm not mad at my mother because I hated God and my dead mother from 1993 to 2008. So if I can hate God and my dead mother for 18 years, that means I can hate the average motherfucker forever. <laughs> That means I have to stay in 10, 11, and 12, or anything can happen. So I got this sponsor, man, and I'm so excited. He barking in my ear. And, I mean, he, I mean, when, when my mother died, it was hard for me to get close to people, and it's still kind of difficult. I'm, it's, I, I went to have different girlfriends because I'm scared they get close, because I don't want that pain to feel that pain. If something happens, they mess around, they die, any damn thing, because I know life shows up. So I don't want to get too close to people. So I'd rather bounce from one person to the next than instead of stick and stay. When it came to this process and Peter, I was scared to have friends as well because I'm thinking, what if they stab me in the back? All because of what happened to me. I mean, psychologically, if you have bad something happen to you it, you, it it messes you up. But this process has allowed me to trust a little bit more. And it allows me to open up a little bit more. And I have a girl now who been off and on. But this last year, I'm like, man, I'm going to try it. I'm going to stick. Still go back, I mean, still go, you know, verbally go back and forth, but I hadn't left. And this is the longest time I've been like this forever. Plus, I got this old school sponsor, and it's like damn near 90, and he always talking about, <laughs> you know, he's old school from New York, so he's always about family and sticking and staying, so I'm really trying. That's why I meet from, and so for me to have the fellowship and the friends that I have today is amazing. And it's only through Alcoholics Anonymous that is allowing me to trust this fellowship. And Peter's the closest. My father died when I was fifth grade. So Peter's like the closest thing to a father. So like if something happened to Peter, I would lose my fucking mind. And I know that. You know what I'm saying? That's why I got to have a fellowship. I got to have other people. 
But one thing about having Peter, I remember Peter, you know how some people, you get a sponsor, you have to call them for like 30 days, 60 days. I had to call Peter every day for a year. <laughs> like, who does that, right? And one day, I missed two days in a row. He, I was at VVSD. He came to VVSD. He said, I was sitting in his car. He got a key. He loves Cadillacs. He had a Cadillac there. I said, I'm sitting in his car. And he said, you missed two days. He said, yeah. He said, he looked at me. He was on the, on the driver's side. He looked at me. He said, if you miss three days in a row, you find you another motherfucking sponsor. <laughs> God. Damn. I mean, straight. So for a whole year, I, didn't, I never missed three days. I used to test them. I would go for two. But I never missed three days in a row. And Peter used to tell me to call him every day. But now I'm on the hindsight. It's 2020. But one of the reasons that I've learned to call Peter because my first 30 days off restrictions. So if I had 15 days at the detox and I got 30 days at VVSD, now when I go off my restriction, I got 45 days. I'm walking from VVSD and I'm walking to uh, the Washington Trolley to go downtown. And I get like two blocks away and this guy come around the corner and say, hey man, you looking? Now where I'm from, when you say, hey man, you looking? That means you know where to go get some stuff at. I said, you know, I just came around. I said, nah, I'm good. So I walk and I get on the, on, the, on the trolley. Now, as I started going downtown, now that physiological effect kicking in. My mouth getting watery, my stomach bubbling. I got a shit. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> I'm on my way downtown, and downtown is where I did a lot of my dirt. But when I got out off the trolley, man, I can't believe it. When I got off the trolley, there was like six people from VVSD standing right there looking at me when I got off the trolley. And they weren't waiting on anyone. That was God doing for me what I could do for myself because I don't know what would have happened. They took me to a meeting. We went up and got a book and went home. And I told Peter that like a couple days later, he said, why didn't you call me? He said, when I was having, why didn't you call me? And I was like, I don't know. I ain't, I ain't think about it. He said, that's why I told you to call me every day. Because you'll get in the habit of calling someone when something pop off, with something in your mind, or so, you get some bright idea, you'll be in the habit of calling someone. I'm like, damn. Now, it was a madness. I mean, it was, it, you know what I'm saying? It, it was, what's the word I'm looking for? It was a method, thank you, to his It was a method to his madness. <laughs> it was a method to his madness, but I didn't understand it at the time. Peter helped nourish me. The meetings helped nourish me. The fellowship helped nourish me. And having a God of my own understanding helped nourish me. So now I got high power. I got to go to meetings. I got a high power, and I'm working. I got a sponsor. And now we're going through these steps. And I'm so glad for the doctor's opinion, man, because I was so like, why can't I stop? Why can't somebody else drink and put it down or, or take one and they're able to say, man, I got to go. I got to go to work. And I'm not going to work once I start. Right. <laughs> oh, don't forget, I'm homeless. So I don't even want a house. I don't want an apartment. I don't want anything. I just want that next one. And I was so grateful when they said you have an allergy of the body. They gave me, they gave me the reason like, OK, that's my problem. That phenomenon of craving because the obsession of the mind, if I drink and use all the time, of course, all I'm going to think about is drinking and using. If I stop drinking and using I have, and get some sobriety time, I'm not going to think about drinking and using. And the phenomenal craving only kicks in once I pick up that first one. And I'm so grateful that I understand that because I understand that if a person is allergic to bees, if they, they may break out in the hives or whatever allergic reaction they might have. But if they don't get stung for 20 years, it doesn't mean they're not allergic to bees. It means they just haven't gotten stung. So just because I haven't drank and picked up in nine years doesn't mean that I don't have that allergy. And, 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 and I'm convinced of that. That's why I'll never be able to 
go out here and say, let me try it, and it's going to be different. I know it ain't going to be different. Because I understand that phenomenal craving and that allergic reaction is always going to be there. So I stick and stay with this process. So when we start going through these steps and made the decision to turn my will in my life over to that care of that God, as I understood him now, it became a lot easier because I don't have to wake up every single day and say, God, what is your will for me? If you have to do that according to the God of your understanding, that's what you have to do. But I don't have to do that according to the God of my understanding because my understanding of the God, of what I understand about the God that I have is, Brian, my will is that you be spiritually responsible with the free will that I already gave you. See, that eliminates a lot of things in my path. Because if I'm spiritually responsible, I'm going to eliminate some of the consequences that I'm used to having. I'm going to eliminate some of the pitfalls that I'm used to going into. So I don't have to wake up every day and say, God, what is your will for me? I just got to wake up and follow the spiritual will that Alcoholics Anonymous gave to me. And that's what I love about Alcoholics Anonymous, man. They're not into ideology, dogma, and creed. They're into the spiritual principles. And I've noticed, I've looked at different religions, and all of them say the same thing when it comes to faith, love, hope, charity. They all say the exact same thing. When you get to the ideology, the dogma, the creeds, the characters, then the shit gets different. And that's what I love about this program, because it's teaching me how to think, and it's teaching me how to live, instead of what character to believe in. One of the hardest things I had to do is make amends. And one of the things I had to do, make amends to, is for myself, to God, and my dead mother. Because I was pissed off. So I forgave my mother because what if she didn't want to tell me she was sick if she was sick? (laughs) If she knew that I was drinking, if she knew I was already an alcoholic, what did she think if she would have told me I probably wouldn't have graduated high school? Because she knew I would have lost my mind way ahead of time. And... Now that I know that I never had a resentment against God, I had a resentment against everyone else's interpretation of God. So now I'm able to forgive God because I know it wasn't him. It was all you all problem telling me how I need to think or how I need to feel about God. But I all this and said, no, you can have the God of your own understanding. And when I did my fourth step, it allowed me to man up and take responsibility of my thinking and my action and my behaviors. And even some of the things where it wasn't my part in it initially, it still became my part in it about how I responded to the situation. Because even if I didn't have any part in the initial, whatever it was, my reaction, which is a lot of time negative, still fueled whatever it was. And now I'm involved in it because I'm reacting to it negatively. But one of the best revelations I've had in step four was when I was at the, uh, the sober living one time and I'm sitting there and I'm talking and I'm thinking about God and one of the best revelations came to me. See, I never heard a voice. I never seen no burning bush. My, my God talks to me is that when a thought comes to my mind, it raises my awareness, and I feel this strong conviction right here that whatever my awareness is raised to is my truth. See, I don't know about your truth. I can tell you about my truth. And the best revelation I've ever had is when that thought, when the thought came to my mind and said, Brian, you can't put all the responsibility on God. You got to get your ass up and do something. And when you fuck up and you, fake, and you, got, and you have consequences, you can't blame everything on this invisible ghost called the devil either. Sooner or later, you got to take responsibilities for your thinking and your actions, which leaves no wiggle room to complain or blame people, places, and things for your situation and your condition. And without the ability to complain or blame, there's an emotional freedom now. I have an emotional freedom now that I've never had before because I'm not walking around angry at the system. I'm not walking around angry at white folks who are putting the dope in my community, putting the alcoholic sign up in my community. Man, I don't like black folks just like I don't like some white folks. 
That's just the way it is. And, it, and it's funny, when I was homeless, and I mean, it's, it's funny how liberal I was when I was homeless, and I had my hand out, asking everybody for a handout. It's crazy, once I started working and I looked at my taxes, <laughs> I got conservative like a motherfucker, right? <laughs> I'm like, my, they taking out this much for who? They need to get off their ass, you know what I'm saying? So now, because I want my money, right? So it's funny how this program would change you, right? So I'm going through these steps, and I'm changing my life around. And one time, man, I had to make amends to this girl. I made amends to her. And sometimes making amends can, can bring out more stuff. I remember I made amends to this girl back in 2010. And she said, okay, I ain't seen you in a while. I'm going to take you out to eat. And I said, I want to make amends. And then she all of a sudden, she was, looking, she was like, huh. She said, let me ask you something since you're making amends, right? Have you ever stole from me? I'm like, damn it, I just made amends. Why you want to go deeper? <laughs> so I'm like, I was like, yeah, yeah, I did. She said, I blamed it on my brother. I told my brother he can. I was like, well, that's what it was, right? And this, this is for all you men, man. Don't underestimate the power of making amends, right? Because after the men's, I have, uh, I think I had a car. I went back to this house where I was, I was skating. She stayed over. She spent the night, slept with me. Things happened. So for you men, making amends can get you laid. So don't underestimate. <laughs> don't underestimate the power of making amends. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Right? <laughs> so now I'm going through this process, man. I'm feeling emotionally free. I'm going to meetings. I got a God in my understanding. I got a sponsor who has my back 100%, and I'm working the steps. And then I started doing service work. When I had six months sober, I went with my sponsor to back to the VOA, the same place where my recovery started. He took me there when I had six months sober because in the other fellowship, which we worked the 12 steps out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, he took me with him, and, he had, and I had six months, and I was doing a meeting. And after the meeting, he said, you know what? He said, my time is up here. He said, uh, you want it? He said, you can, you can do it. I said, yeah, I ain't have a car. But while I was at VVSD, I was catching the bus, going to do H&I at the same place that I started from, which was the VOA. And nine years later, I'm still doing H&I every first Saturday of the month at the fucking VOA. Because I started at the VOA. H&I brought the message to me in a meeting at the VOA. It gave me hope. So I continuously go back to try to get hope to somebody else. So don't underestimate this program. This program is a beautiful thing. I also was going inside the jails. And when you see somebody get out of jail and they say, man, I remember you. And they start going to the meetings. And there's this one guy said, man, I remember you. And I want to change. And I see him get out. I see him go to meetings. And now he just wrote a poetry book, right? And it's pretty good. He gave it to me. And he wrote, he, uh, uh, wrote it to me. And, you know, he put his little paragraph and his little signature. He get out and all of a sudden he get hooked up with Stedman, who's Oprah Winfrey's boyfriend. And now he's going to be going around to different schools talking. And it feels good when somebody get out and say, man, I remember you. Thanks for coming and sharing your experience with though. That's why I love H&I. I'd rather do H&I than sponsor. I mean, than sponsor. But I sponsor just because I had one. He'll say some shit if I don't. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that, that's why I do what I do. But this program has changed my life. I love this program, and I always close in one thing, but before I close one thing, I know this is a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, but just for the record, 
Did anybody in here get high b- besides me? Anybody here? Okay. So I always close the way I always close is let you know how fucking sick I really am, right? When you're a fourth waiver, you can, when you're a fourth waiver, they can search you at any moment, at any time for anything without your permission because you waived your Fourth Amendment rights. I was in the, I was in East San Diego in the alley and I had some some dope on me, right? And the cops were gonna come up and I put it in my mouth and I swallow it. They search me and they gone. Now they gone. Now I want my dope that's in me to come up out of me so I can smoke it. I don't want to go back across the street to Panhandle. Why I need to Panhandle and get more money when I already got dope on the inside of me? I just need to fucking throw up, right? But I'm panicking so much that the thought of putting my finger down my throat doesn't even come to my mind. A smart person would have thought of that. When it comes to drinking and getting loaded, I am beyond smart. I am a dumb rock, right? So I'm looking around, and I'm looking around, I'm looking around in the alleys, and I'm willing to swallow anything except some dick to make myself throw up. So I'm looking, I'm looking around in the alleys, and all of a sudden I see some dog shit. The first thing, the first thing, the first thing to come to my mind is, Brian, you take a piece of that dog shit, you swallow it, you're going to throw up and you're going to get your dope back. (laughs) An insane person would have said, man, that is dumb. (laughs) When it comes to drinking and getting loaded, I am beyond insane. First thing came to my mind, that sounds like a bright idea. (laughs) So I take a piece of that dog shit, I swallow him, "Eh, eh." I'm dry heaving and the shit don't work. Now I'm mad as hell, right? My dope is melting. I just ate some dog shit. The average person would the average person would have said, you know what? Fuck it, let me go panhandle. But when it comes to getting loaded, I am beyond insane. The thing that cut in my mind was you already did it one time. You might as well do it again. I take another piece of that dog, that dog shit, I swallow it. I start throwing up. I'm on my hands and knees, and I'm looking through my throw-up for my dope. And I find my two 20s. I dried them off. I put them on my pipe, and I smoked it. So there are a lot of reasons I don't drink and smoke dope, but one of the reasons one of the reasons I don't drink and smoke dope is because I know if I drink and smoke dope, there's a possibility I might eat some dog shit. Thanks for letting me share. as an alcoholic, both as a 
active alcoholic, drinking, and also just physically sober but not doing anything to change, and also a recovered alcoholic, and what is the difference? What did I do to get there? Um, forgive me if I uh, take pauses. I haven't spoken in for 30 or so minutes in front of a group of alcoholics before in some time. When I got sober in the United States, this is the more customary format. But since I've been in Oslo, it's much more of just the reading from a book and sharing for a few minutes at a time. So I'll try to just give you something worthwhile to listen to for this time together. Um, this is just my own experience. I'm not an authority on Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not the president, thank God, of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not an expert. This is just my own experience. And a lot of my experience comes from doing it wrong. And I'm trying to cite some very clear examples for you to show you, hopefully, what not to do. You don't have to waste years of time and going out in the jungle of active alcoholism to arrive to the same conclusion. If you're here now, you can stay sober now and never, ever drink again. Relapse is not a mandatory requirement. It's not cool. It's not interesting. Um, there's no value there. Um, knuckleheads like me sometimes have to relapse and destroy everything and burn it down into the ground before we get the solution that is read a little bit today in our chapter five from the big book, or maybe embodied by the membership of those to the left and right of you. But you don't have to drink again. There's nothing out there. Um, you know, I'm an alcoholic as they describe it in the big book, which means that when I drink, I can't control how much I drink. And I've tried, believe me, I've really put some time and effort into trying to control this thing. And by definition, if I'm trying to control it, it means it's out of control. I've seen another groups of people who drink and they don't seem to have a problem just stopping if there's a problem. Uh, my wife is a good example. She will drink maybe three glasses of wine. Oh my Lord, three glasses of wine and not feel good the next day and goes, oh my God, I'm going to just cut that out, and then six or nine or 12 months will go by until she has another glass of wine, maybe for her birthday or for Christmas or something. That is Chinese to me. Um, there's other people I grew up with in California, which I, I'm from San Francisco, not Los Angeles. Is that a big deal? Not really. Not really. But I read the SMS saying, Brennan from Los Angeles, and no offense to any Angelinos, but it's like saying... Someone who's from Bergen is from Oslo. It's just, it's not true. Um, so I'm from San Francisco, and I'm, I'm very grateful I was born there. Um, but I know some people in the Bay Area of California who can drink a lot, and from the outside you might think, well, wow, they're, they're maybe a potential alcoholic, and maybe they are, time will tell. But when they have a good reason, like they're getting behind on work, or their spouse says, hey, you should really cut that out, or maybe they drink a little bit too much on Friday or Saturday, then they can just stop. And I wish I was in that class. I really wish I had that ability to drink to the edge and then stop when I want to, but I can't. Um, the truth is, and the, the truth is often very humbling, it's not pleasant to admit, but the truth is that when I drink, I tend to black out. I tend to get fired from jobs. 
I tend to get arrested. I tend to go to psychiatric hospitals where they lock the door and prevent me from leaving when I want to. I tend to spend lots and lots and lots of money on booze, on women, on cars, on plane tickets. I tend to drink and then wake up in a different house or a different city. Um, I can't find my phone. I can't find my wallet. Um, I'll shit in my pants on the subway downtown, heading uptown. Uh, I'll puke in my bed and then just roll over because I'm not sober enough to clean it up at that time. I'll deal with it in the morning, which is usually the afternoon when I <laughs> come to in this stinky, disgusting bed. Now, any one of those things you would think would be like, that's a problem. But for alcoholics of my variety, we tend to make do. We think, well, that's just the price you pay for having a nice time. Or, well, at least, I, at least they released me from jail. Well, at least I'm not at that job anymore because they don't know what a great worker they're losing. There's always some excuse, but it's never, maybe I should look at the drinking. Like, I know I should, but I can't really fathom a life without the drink. Because I've been sober every time, every time, before I picked up the first drink. So being sober is like, that sucks. Sobriety sucks. And if you're a real alcoholic, you know exactly what I'm talking about. People who get sober and are like, this is great. I love it. Oh, my God, look outside. It's sunny, happy, joyous, free, blah, blah, blah. I don't identify with you. <laughs> to me, you're not an alcoholic of my type. Alcoholics of my type, they get sober and like, this sucks. When, when do I feel better? God damn it. This is not fun. And we need something else than just physically staying sober. Our message in Alcoholics Anonymous is not, don't drink. Or, hey, you're an alcoholic. Stop it. You know, it's, it's so much more than that. And I need something to replace my whole way of thinking, my whole way of being, my whole way of doing life, than just quitting drinking. Quitting drinking is essential, but it's a, it's a beginning. It's a start. The big book says, um, we think a man is unthinking if he believes that sobriety is enough. Now, I don't like hearing shit like that because it forces me to realize how little I'm doing to really go for this thing. Surrender, I don't know about you all, but I'm not a big expert on surrendering, like 100% in. I'm about compliance. I'll do the bare minimum, and then the rest just leave me alone. I don't want to put all my chips in. That's too big of a risk. I'm too scared. I'm too selfish. I'm too much of an egomaniac. If I put everything in, that means I'm really committed. Like, I really have to do it then. I'm, then I'm a responsible I want to have like a backup plan. I want an exit somewhere. I want um, some kind of excuse not to do the right thing. But AA is like, no. Half measures avail us nothing. Like 50% equals 0% in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm like, well, why not 50? Why can't we have it be 50 equals 50? It's like, well, because it just doesn't. You know, my father was an alcoholic. Does that make me an alcoholic? No, it doesn't. Does it mean I'm more likely to be an alcoholic? Maybe. But when I get that information about the family tree, it's just a waste of time for me. Because for me, it's like, 
why am I an alcoholic? Why? Was it him? You know, and like I become like Hercule Poirot trying to find out like the answer of like what is the culprit. And I found like who cares? Why am I an alcoholic? It's like well why not? Why not? I know people who have both parents who are alcoholic. They don't drink at all. It's just not an issue for them. People who neither of their parents is an alcoholic, they're worse off than I am. They are fucking insane. So it's not about who's your mom or your dad or what they did. Who cares? Let's talk about you. You know, that's what my sponsor is about. He's like, well, that's nice. What about you? Let's talk about what you did, how you lied, how you destroyed everyone and everything in your path. Like, your dad has his own sponsor, his own recovery. It's none of your business. And that's very humbling, because I want to blame someone else. I don't want to be responsible. So I drank, like many Americans, I guess, at that time. I was born in 72. Uh, you drink when you're, like, 14. You know, you're not legally allowed to drink, but you find access to booze anyway, because you want it. You just feel like it's fun. And for the first seven years eight years it was fun you know there was no consequences it was utopia you drank you had a party you met girls you played rock and roll you drove all around the pacific coast and it was nice there was no consequences yet but when i moved to new york city in 1990 consequences started happening the the, the brakes were then released and i found that i was now drinking more and more and more and having to lie more and more about how much I'm drinking, which maybe is not a big deal, but it's an early warning sign. If you're always lying about how much you drink, like, if it's, if it's not a problem, just be honest. Yeah, I had three bottles of wine by myself at home last night. Never would say that. Oh, I had a couple drinks, maybe three. It was always this vague, oh, I can't remember because it's such a no big deal. It was a huge big deal. I would drink before going out to a party. I was always the first one there if there was free booze. I would always close that party down, and I'd always find somewhere or someone else to drink more with afterwards. It was just a necessity. It was not to have fun with other people. It was a um, twisted act. I started losing jobs in my early 20s. Again, the arrogance and the ego justified that. Well, they don't know what a genius I am. I just can't be bothered with these little people um not that well maybe it's because you're supposed to open the store at 7 30 you didn't arrive there until one in the afternoon because you're out until seven in the morning you know that kind of behavior was normal that's it's amazing how quickly that kind of stuff becomes normal what we think is really cute and um acceptable as an alcoholic but I thought Alcoholics Anonymous was for old people, like my dad, who, um, and I didn't really get what you did here. I thought it was, um, you know, coffee, folded metal chairs in some church basement somewhere where you sit around and talk about the good old days, you know, how fun it was when you got to drink. But now, alas, you can't. And that's what I really thought it was. I didn't think anyone actually wanted to be there or that... Being a sober alcoholic was not about just not drinking. I didn't get that. I didn't think anyone below, you know, 45 years old would ever go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting until I met someone who was 28 and she was seven years sober. And I went, okay, well, that just challenged my prejudice about what we do here. 
So I went to a meeting with her. I went to the Second Avenue Clean and Dry meeting in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. If any of you have been there, it's like CBGBs. It's like tattoos, leather jackets, guitars, like the Ramones. And they're all like under age 30. I'm like, these are alcoholics who don't drink? I just could not believe that. I thought you were all just putting a very elaborate spectacle on for my benefit. But I would come in and out from time to time because I thought it was very entertaining. I thought the stories were very colorful. I thought the people were very interesting, but it wasn't for me. It was like a free show, you know, or maybe you give like a dollar, but it wasn't like something I was like participating in. I was just sort of, you know, checking it out in case I need it. But then I tried coming back in 96. You know, I was uh, getting thrown out of my apartment. I had a relationship on the rocks and I was out of money and I couldn't work. So now I'm like, well, I kind of have a motive. I didn't really think it was drinking though. I just thought I'd need to like get back on track. No, I just got to get, get, get my shit together. And then I'll look at this alcohol thing, maybe. But I really think I need this, like, therapy. I need to talk about myself and how I feel, you know, and, like, how awful my life is that none of you really grasp. So I have to tell you how deeply painful it is forever. And uh, if I talk about it enough, then you'll understand, and then you'll treat me differently when you're around me. Because that's what I need. I'm not going to change. You have to change because I'm now in the room. Um, I didn't do any of the steps. I didn't get a sponsor. But I talked about it a lot because I read it on the banners and I heard how it works at the beginning of each meeting. So I thought I was a real authority, you know, on like analyzing it like an English teacher. I could just circle a word and then that word and talk about it, you know, really in depth. And that lasted for about four years. And um, my life did get better. I got back to work. I got a new relationship. I was making more money. Now I'm like rocking and rolling. Now I'm busy. Now I don't have time to go to those stupid AA meetings. I mean, what are they going to tell me? Don't drink. Got it. Got it. I don't need, you know, I know that. Believe in a higher power? No. It's all suggestions. I don't have to, right? It's all suggestions. It's just like optional, all this getting better stuff. So I'm just not going to do it. But, you know, if I need you, I know where to go. You know, I'm in control now. Thank you very much. See you later. And I was doing my own little thing for about nine months. And then someone said, Brendan, would you like a glass of wine? Of course, sure, why not? Didn't even think about it. There was no, like, warning bells. Even though I'd been to about 1,300 meetings by that point. It doesn't matter. Just going to meetings is not a defense against the first drink. Thinking it through is not a defense against the first drink. Knowing how awful scientifically alcohol does to the human body is not enough of a defense against the first drink. Remembering some nice story that someone did on their 10-year anniversary three years ago on a Saturday night in the Lower East Side is not a defense against the first drink. Having a phone number in your pocket that you don't use is not a defense against the first drink. All these things that I heard from some people in AA, very selective few, I thought was like my program. And it did absolutely nothing. Within three months, um, I was drinking every day. I had a scholarship to go back to school, lost that, uh, got engaged, burned down a house in Connecticut, lost lots of jobs, lots of money, got arrested in a foreign country, which is always exciting, uh, was in a psychiatric unit twice, you know, all these nice things. And you would think, well, that should, like, you know, drive you back to AA. No. Are you kidding? It's not like I get to choose when I'm done. You know, thankfully, after four years, somehow, on 
on uh, December 29th, 2005, I came back. Was I was that day worse off than any of the other four years? Not really. It was kind of average. Um, but for some reason, and I don't know why, and I don't really care, for some reason when I came to that day after a five-day bender, beginning in San Francisco with a layover in Vegas and then ending up in New York City, I somehow had this thought, go to a meeting today. And I obeyed that instruction. And I haven't had a drink since. And I knew when I came back, I couldn't do it the same old, same old. Like I've gone to meetings where I sit in the back, check my phone for messages while the meeting's in progress, dodge getting a sponsor and never share or participate. And that's where it got me was a four-year relapse. And I'm sorry, but I'm not interested in that bullshit anymore. I really want to get better. I want to get on with my life. And I heard people saying, well, it's an arm's length from the next drink. Wrong. That is such hokum. You can either be an arm's length from a drink or 12 steps from a drink. 12 steps is like to that door. I'd rather it be over there, remove the problem, and then get on with the rest of your life. And I got really excited about that because I was broken, like inside broken. Like there's nothing left. And I was terrified that I couldn't even do it. Now that I really wanted to get sober, can I do it? Do I have the strength to do it? Do I have the willingness to do it? Do I have the humility to do it? I don't know. And when I have sponsees that are like that, I'm like, you can do it. If you're not sure, but that honest, I'm sure you're going to be fine. The ones you have to watch out for are the ones that know everything by the end of their 30 days. It's like, whoa, man, slow down, slow down. So I got an old school sponsor who was all about the big book. You know, I'm going to teach you how to do the steps out of the big book. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is the only book in Alcoholics Anonymous that shows you how to do the steps. So it's kind of important, I learned, to get into that book. And I heard people talking about it and quoting it, and I did not even realize how appropriate it was to my life. I was like, wow, that's in the big book? That's actually helpful. I thought it was just this boring, old-fashioned book from the 30s with, you know, old-fashioned language. It's like, no, this is a toolkit to help you live your life without a drink a day at a time. And then you never have to pick up again, ever. Well, I thought it was just like, you never know. Like, any time in the future, you might drink again. It's like, that's bullshit. Like, do you think that's all we have to offer, that kind of roll the dice? Are you serious? What meetings have you been going to? So I had to go to new meetings and meet new people who actually had stuff going on. And it was very intimidating because I'm like, it showed how little I knew. And I don't like to admit what I don't know. I like to think I know everything. Maybe some of you can identify. I hear laughter and <laughs> nodding heads. You know, it's like, I, but it's like my inability to just say, help me, teach me, show me is very scary. It's not something I do very easily. It's a muscle I have to practice all the time. So I got this guy, John F who could not be more different from me on the outside, but on the inside, we were the same person. And um, he took the time for free over coffee at his house on the phone to just show me how this whole thing works. And um, that kind of stuff is happening all over the world, not collects anonymous. People are changing each other's lives. It doesn't make the headlines of any newspaper or blog sites or NR Coal or anything like that, but it's the most important thing going on in many ways. And he showed me how to get involved, to do the steps only as a way to be of better service to other people. It's not about just this constant inventory or debate about what is a higher power, but instead about being more useful to other people, not just in Alcoholics Anonymous, but just in your life.
And um, it doesn't mean that my life has been perfect, you know, or uh, always awesome. Like, yay, sober. Please don't get that impression. Sometimes being sober is very, very difficult, at least for me. Very challenging. Um, God is not Santa Claus. And God is not some uh, errand boy for Brendan's master plan. Uh, Life is very mysterious. So I can do things half-assed and things can work out. But things, I can do everything right and a total disaster. Um, Life can be very unfair. Life can be very painful. And at least how my sponsor describes it to me is, um, well, when you were drinking, Brendan, you were kind of like negative 50, like you're subhuman, like not even, you know, like you're just a lying, selfish parasite, like this disgusting scumbag. But now you're at zero. You're like everyone else. So it's not really any big deal that you went to work on time and did a good job. That's what you're supposed to do. Or if you are honest with your spouse, that's what you're supposed to do. If you help someone who is in need, that's what you're supposed to do. Like, I thought, like, well, where's my reward? It's like, the reward is that you get to do it. Period. But that also means now you get to be fired from jobs or promoted from jobs. You get to be married or divorced. You get to go into debt or pay off your debts. I mean, now you're in life. It's not like you have some kind of guarantee where, well, now I'm sober. Life's working for me, baby. Oh, yeah. That's not how it works. But no matter what those up and downs are, what those ups and downs are, I can handle it without drinking. That's the difference. And that's huge. Like when I was out there, someone could like bump, a stranger could bump into me on a subway on the east side of Manhattan, and that would like catalyze me towards a bender for 10 hours, and I would lose my job the following day. (laughs) Now it's like, I've gone through so many horrible things that I never thought, how am I gonna get through that? But you just get through it a day at a time. It's amazing. And other people are doing it as well. It might be family issues, it might be health issues, it might be financial issues. These are all things that we can learn from each other in the body of the fellowship about how to get through life sober. The book is great about getting you there, but the fellowship is also important to show you the day-to-day stuff, the meeting before the meeting, the meeting after the meeting, talking to people between meetings. All that is really important stuff rather than just quoting pages 58 to 60. I'm married. My wife is Norwegian. Uh, We have a beautiful daughter. Um, And we're going through the process of this highly bureaucratic, slow, frustrating at times immigration department in Norway. It's extremely annoying. I won't bore you with the details during this time. If you're really interested, uh, I'd be happy to tell you afterwards if you want. But it's it's a real practice and um, it's really not in my power to do anything more than the tiny thing that I can do. It's just how it is. If you're married to a Norwegian, it's not an automatic residency. If you have a daughter, it's not an automatic residency. If you've worked here before, pay taxes here, employed Norwegians, none of that makes a goddamn difference to the immigration department. So it's really like, ah, you know, but it doesn't mean I get to drink. Doesn't mean I get to be a jerk off when I'm in contact with UDI. Doesn't mean that I get to lash out. It's just how it is except life on life's terms, not on, like, my terms. It's just 
specialized terms. Like that's how it is. If we want to relocate here permanently, these are the hoops we have to jump. We have to jump through, and it takes a long time. I do service at uh, the Wednesday Big Book Study Group at the Lutheran Church. Um, I helped start it six years ago with uh, four other people. It's still running. It had five guys. We now have like 15 people uh, on a regular basis, and it's great, you know, to see this meeting have a life of its own. I have three sponsees. Um, some of them call all the time, <laughs> and sometimes uh, I have to call them and be like, "Are you alive?" what is happening with you okay thanks but um they they help me stay honest because when i'm going through the book with them or i'm giving them some you know very interesting aa advice inevitably whatever they're going through makes me go god i that's a great suggestion about do a 10 step more often well i should click i should really do that myself you know and then i talk about my sponsor it's like yeah that's how it works you know we help we get a lot of help by helping other people i always thought i have to feel ready and then I'll help you. That's not how we do it in AA. It's like, just get in the car. Well, where are we going? What do you care? Get in the car. Let's just go. It's like, we're going to the meeting. Well, who's speaking? Who cares? Just get, go. We're going to the meeting. Just do it. We'll do a service commitment for how long? Who cares? What have you got going on? You got nothing going on on Wednesday night. Just, get a service commitment. just do it. You know, just do it. And then over time, you start to learn why that's such a great thing. Because inevitably, in your future, there's going to come a time when a storm is coming. It might be... A relative gets ill, you get fired from a job, you get into an argument with a loved one. It, might, it also might be that you get a raise, you get a promotion, you, you arrive. But at some point, there's going to be a storm, and that's going to really test how strong your design for living really is. Not theory, but like the truth, the real stuff. Now, that could happen tomorrow, that could happen next year. I don't know. None of us know. But we have to be ready. And that's why we do all this stuff now, to get ready. Because you never know when it's going to happen. Life is messy. It's unpredictable. And um, it's so much more than just the meeting. The meeting is one hour of the 20, 24. Like, what are you doing those other 23 to get ready? Um, I know I don't do enough as I know I could. Um, I always fall short. I always try to do better. But it's tough. You know, it's it's tough when you have eight and a half years sober, you have a beautiful family, you're you have a nice home, you have, you know, food on the table, electricity's working fine. To have that same burn that I did when it was uh the first couple weeks. So for me, like the service commitments which get me to meetings regularly, whether I like it or not, and also sponsees that I'm accountable for to some degree, because they're gonna call. They're going to call when I'm watching that rerun of Law & Order that I think is so important to finish. Like, I can, it's really important to pick up the phone. Like, just pick up the phone and try to talk with them, listen to what they have to say. I don't know what they're going to say or what they're going to ask, but I have to just be there. And by doing that, I, I remember what it was like on a more experiential way. And I'm very, very grateful that I don't have to live like that anymore, that we don't have to live like that anymore, that the problems of my life today are so much more interesting than where's my phone or who are you, which apartment is this, Did, how, what am I going to tell my boss to get out of this one? Like those are not interesting problems to have today in life. But that, that was the nature of my life for about 32, 33 years. So... Um, it's a wonderful program. It's a wonderful opportunity to not be limited by the prison of 
alcoholism to not be worried about when am I going to drink or I'm going to walk home? Am I going to pass by a liquor store or a bar? Is that going to be a temptation? If you really are practicing these 12 steps with your heart fully, you can go anywhere in the world without having the temptation to drink again. Um, that's what we offer here. If that's of interest to you, you're in the right place. You know, that's definitely of interest to me. Like the, the jokes in AA, that's not enough. The slogans, this is not enough. Like walk the talk. Okay. How's that going to help me? When I'm like reaching for the Stella Artois, I need something stronger than a slogan. I need a higher power. Now that higher power tends to make people recoil. It doesn't have to. It could be anything that you understand that makes sense to you. It makes sense to me in my life. It doesn't have to be your understanding. Like if someone believes in God, Jesus, Buddha, whatever, that's their business. Find something that works for you. A higher power that works for you. Key thing is that it's not you. It's within you. It's a part of you, but it's not you. You know, be careful of alcoholism. Like I sponsor myself. You know, don't do ISM. You know, I sponsor myself. I self me. You know, alcoholism is present. You know, it's not alcoholism. It's alcoholism. So try to find someone else who knows more about staying sober than you do. And listen to what they say, and then do it. You know, my sponsor's, I'll fi finish with this. My sponsor's a big fan of, how about right now? <laughs> you know, yeah, I really think I should do a four-step. Great, how about right now? Oh, you mean after we get off the phone? No, like right now. <laughs> or after we finish lunch? No, right now. You know, powerful stuff. Because, like, I know in my experience, writing the fourth step probably took about 45 minutes. But I thought about it for, like, a couple months. You know, the thinking, the worrying, the, no, I'm thinking about my, I'm working on my fourth step. No, you're not. You're thinking about your fourth step, Brendan. That's all you're doing. You're stressing about your fourth step, but you're not working on it. You could do it in like an hour. Some people do that. They're like, okay, here's some note, here's some pen and paper. I'm going to make a pot of coffee. I'll come back in an hour, see how it's going. And if you don't get it perfectly, no big deal. You're going to do this again anyway. So just like get it out there. Like get on with it. Don't do the fourth step, the four-step program. Do all 12. Step four and step nine, people tend to, like, freak out. And it's like, just keep it simple. These are tools to help us. Um, I'm told I can suggest a topic. Um, so I guess what I'd love to hear from all of you is your experience of the difference between the AA program and the AA fellowship. Um, the two are interrelated, of course, and they're, they're both very helpful. But I think, especially for those that might be new, to understand the difference between those two, I think, is really valuable. Because I know when I was new, I thought, well, this is it. It's all the same. And then I relapsed, and I nearly died with the misunderstanding that this is not it. This is a part of it, but it's not it. So, and the book is not it part of it but it's not it so if you can help us with your sharing talk about that great if you have something else that you need to talk about instead of course do whatever you need to do to uh not drink today but thank you very much for giving this opportunity to share some of my flaws and my disease and my recovery and uh thank you, thank you.